Welcome to the Whole Story Podcast. This podcast series is focused on inspiring sustainability in agriculture using the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs. Each week, our guests are invited to share their story and leave us with some practical tips for sustainability on farms. I'm Bex Smith, founder of The Whole Story, a B Corp certified social enterprise inspiring, facilitating and articulating holistic sustainability in agriculture. And this podcast has been brought to life in partnership with the incredible team at FMG, who are passionate about partnering with organisations like The Whole Story, so together we can support rural New Zealand. So whatever you're doing while listening to this episode, thanks for choosing us. The best way you can support our mahi is to follow and share the show on whatever app you're listening on, and I hope this episode leaves you inspired and excited about the bigger picture of sustainability in agriculture. Today on the Whole Story podcast, I am joined by Andrew Darling from Adar Farms. Andrew and his wife Amy have an arable farm just south of Timaru. Andrew is Federated Farmers Vice President Arable Chair and has recently been named a Corteva Climate Positive Regional Leader. Since this recording, Andrew and Amy have picked up yet another accolade. They have just been awarded the Environmental and Sustainability Award at the 2023 Arable Awards. And in the words of the judges, they walk the talk on the likes of soil health, minimum tillage and precision fertiliser use. So settle in and let's hear straight from the horse's mouth just how he's implemented these practices on farm. Welcome along today, everybody. Today we've got joining us Andrew Darlings. Welcome, Andrew. And I wonder if first up you could tell us a little bit about your farming business, where you are, what you're farming and a bit about yourself. Yeah, so Andrew Darling, farming with my wife Amy on our family farm just south in the Timaru boundary. We farm right up to the coast, so we're all arable and mainly wheat, barley, all seed rate and some turf grasses and some spring options, some sunflowers and other things along the way. So yeah, Amy and I were in our second year of leasing the family farm off Joy and Warren and we're fourth generation on the farm and then prior to that I've been a diesel mechanic, left school working on tractors and then progressed into some integrated solutions within the business so looking at gps gear and data collection and those sorts of things for a couple of years before working with warren on the farm since 2015 yeah and then the last couple of years like i say uh, amy and i have stepped up and taken the lease over ourselves i tell you what that's the dream isn't it stepping up through into an intergenerational family farm and actually getting to that point where you can take on that lease I mean, we've been really lucky too that along that way too, like Warren sort of gave me a real management role as well and letting me try a few ideas and bits and pieces, but then still having it here now working with me daily as well, sort of letting me make a few mistakes myself and try things, but also a real good backstop to keep me in the right direction and years of experience, so really lucky. Yeah, it's a key place to learn in that succession planning, right? Like how you have the handover managed. Pretty good when you want to go on holiday too, right? Yeah, yeah it is good having a <laughs> workforce that knows the farm and got my younger brother that's casual staff here too so you know you can rely on people that know the area and you're really lucky sounds pretty useful being a mechanic on farm too yeah no it is but then you still got to get out usually the mechanic's car is the worst one that's in the fleet but <laughs> no it, it, it has been a handy trade to have for sure yeah and probably with the integration you mentioned just of some of the tech tools and stuff do you reckon your background's helped with that a bit yeah, some of the technology stuff that we've introduced, especially on this farm, yeah, that background probably was a good leading thing and hasn't made me too nervous to try things and 
adapt things to different bits of machinery that we do have. Yeah, that's been, at this stage, quite a useful um, part of my career. Very good. And so, as you know, the work that I do with the whole story is focused on inspiring sustainability in agriculture. Sustainability is a really big word, and it's got a whole lot of different meanings to different people. I'd love to hear what it means to you, Andrew. Yeah, you know, it is. It's a big word. You hit it on the head and it's confusing and it can mean different things. But for what we've been focusing on our farm, we're multi-generational. Babe and I are our fourth generation and we've got three young boys now and we would like them to have a go at farming if that's what they would like to do. So, yeah, it's we can be sustainable on our own farm, you know, and look after the soil and the thing that we have below us, a great asset. If it's in a better position now when they get to take it over, I think me and Amy have you know done our job. Yeah, and I'd probably take the same angle. It's about really having pride in what you do and that legacy that you leave forward for whoever comes next. Hopefully our children get involved in farming and agriculture, but even just for someone else's children too, right? You're leaving it for someone, so you want it to be better off as a result of your footprint on it. Exactly. I thought this was about custodians of land and those things, but it's true. That is what it is, and and that's probably really our focus, that, that we could be profitable in the meantime. I think that's resiliency comes part of our sustainability as well that we can certain weather events and other things if we can still be profitable because we're not profitable we, we won't be here tomorrow or have another crack next year someone once told me you've got to be in the black before you can go green which i think is quite important sometimes that we can get waylaid and just look at big future of being a hundred percent green or whatever you want to be but you still got to turn a profit on your farm and otherwise we won't be here yeah, well, otherwise we'd be out of it. Our kids wouldn't get a shot, you know, like it enables us to yeah. be able to actually improve it for the future. A lot of what we've done with some of our profitability things and looking how we can get a bigger gross margin, some of them actually had really good environmental, like reducing some of our inputs, and they've been a profitability driver to start with, but then they've traded off into environmental and sustainability. Yeah, it's amazing how they're all interlinked, don't they? Once you start moving in one direction and you start to see which levers pull, they actually do lift up in other areas as well. Yeah, I wouldn't call myself an eco-warrior at all or anything like that, but it's just surprising the things you do. A majority of the time has a, a, you know, a good environmental aspect to it as well, I guess. Yeah. So I guess diving a bit deeper then, could you tell us a bit more about the journey from the farming history to where you are now and that process you've gone through? I guess some of the big changes on farm was back in late 90s, uh, early 2000s, we were predominantly a sheep breeding farm a lot smaller than what it was now but also we were seed cleaning too so there's always been a bit of arable integrated into what we were doing and then about 2004 dad warren went to europe and look at different ways of managing residue because we, we can burn residue here but being we're split in half by state Ohio one so close to the town boundary you could see the pressure was getting harder and harder to do some of those things so yeah he looked at different ways of integrating sort of that residue management and that probably not knowing to him at the time that's probably led us down the path we are now of, we've had some real good soil gains building up our organic matter our carbon levels and things like that there's been a bit of learning across the way and probably not the right tools at the right time that's near 20 years ago now and we haven't burned any residue on that time we've done very small amount of plowing so we do the minimum amount of cultivation possible on our farm and we're seeing some really good soil gains so we have gone away from livestock on our farm at this point so we are all intensive arable but we are seeing gains in our organic matter and carbon levels either staying neutral or with bit increases in different areas we're not going backwards i think that comes down to how we do manage our soils and on top of that since 2014 we've been doing 
hectare grid sampling on the farm, so all our P, K and pH is variably applied. Being an ex-stock farm, there's been different stock camps and bits and pieces, so all internal fences have been pulled out. So we've got heavy nutrient loading in different areas, so there's parts of our paddocks now that hasn't had any P or K applied since then because they're just so dense in those nutrients because of the different farming history. So yeah, we've had some really good inroads there, and then the last couple of years I've really worked on our nitrogen management as well um, using tools available to be a bit smarter and apply nitrogen at the right timing and then also variably applied as well so there's tracked amount of sensors to apply nitrogen in areas that crop growth requires and we're seeing an overall reduction in our nitrogen applied plus it's getting in the areas that it's needed and there's also other aspects of that as arable farmers are probably pretty good at being too kind to poor areas that aren't going to yield if it's not going to, a bit of extra nitrogen is not going to fix a problem, it will turn the fertilizer spreader off in those areas. I've probably just jumped over quite a few things very quickly there, but that's been a real journey in the last 20 years. You know, it's reducing some of those synthetic inputs and putting them in the right areas, and then really that soil health. And on top of that too, there's been IPM, which is integrated pest management. So looking at aphids are a big problem in our cereal program. So we we're using a lot of heavy synthetic inputs. So yeah, instead we use a lot of our beneficials to manage our aphid species instead of wiping everything out use more targeted programs to only target the aphid and get the beneficials to help us keep those aphid species down so yes, that's been a bit of our journey and I guess what I would call the sustainability side. There's so many things that you've implemented on farm along the way that I'd love to go back and explore and one of them you mentioned a few times was actually the level of carbon in the soil. Do you want to just Go into that a little bit deeper, how you guys have been measuring for that and um, accounting for that carbon change in soil. We could see something visually was happening in the soil. And I wish we did a lot more testing back in the early 2000s to, to record where we've gone from there to now. And I was just, sorry, at the end of last year, was when it was, I was looking at some from 2016 to some we did last year. And I think over that time, that's where you need to view it. The organic matter, we definitely knew that was going up, but then to track that carbon too. I haven't put a lot of time and effort into it. But just to see it's either staying neutral or majority of the time actually moving forward, I think we're making some good inroads there. But that whole carbon soil market is something I'm staying clear of at the moment. It's a value to the soil health, and if we can keep it on farm and grow it that way, that's what I'm interested in. It's just it's another measure that we can see progress in. Yeah, I think it's a really useful perspective to have, and I think I certainly follow a lot of the Australian commentary around soil carbon, and she's a pretty hot topic over there. The longer time scale, isn't it? The carbon changes, as opposed to like the likes of organic matter and and the things that visually perhaps you can see in a shorter time scale. Yeah, that's right. It's good to to track and and show we're heading in the right direction and in an intensive arable operation with some tillage. That's why I think it's it's a good thing and um, it explains we were probably seeing some progress in our soil health. Yeah, and I'm really interested in these auto-sensing mounts on the tractors. How do they know when to apply different things and, and when not to? And, and how's that all assessed? Yeah, an awful lot. It's looking at the chlorophyll in the plant, and then there's a very fancy algorithm that happens in the background. Uh, I think it's taken sort of four or six photos a second and sending it back into its own computer. And then it's algorithms that's been worked on for the last 25 years and out of Europe. And so it knows on a wheat plant at that certain growth stage when the nitrogen uptake's quite high, it can assess what's in the plant. Nitrogen that's already there, you give it a couple inputs on what's going to become available as well, just depending on some of the soil tests that you've done during the year. And then it can chop and change. So we can bring some other areas up and get some good yield, but then also in some where we've got a bit more nutrient under the ground or the plant's doing quite well, we can reduce some of our nitrogen 
So we're getting a lot of soft benefits as well with easier harvesting and not lodging crops by giving it a bit too much nitrogen or anything like that. So yeah, multifaceted, it is an expensive tool. Some of those things are hard to work out a true return on because there's a lot of soft benefit, but we are seeing an overall reduction in that nitrogen spend as well and maintaining some pretty good yields. Yeah, and in a year such as this, having a reduction in input spend is definitely beneficial to the whole system. Yeah, it become quite a hot topic with some things happening in Ukraine and those inputs definitely skyrocketed so yeah definitely needed to work out best management when it comes back to profitability using some of these inputs. I think that's a really important point that's actually profitable but it's also putting nutrients where they're needed when they're needed so it has that environmental impact as well like we talked about before actually pulling one lever has lifted another as well and they are all connected with the one solution there. Yeah that's right and on top of that too, there's a lot of data collection that we get with mapping our crops so much. So that's when we can overlay and look at our nitrogen use efficiencies. There's some new websites and things that are being created at the moment, so we can overlay that with our yield data and really work out where we've been efficient with our nitrogen and then be really targeted when we go and do some more soil tests to know where our profitable parts of our paddock are and understand why. And yeah, it could be something outside nitrogen. Sometimes we use it as a bit of a band-aid. We can look at other reasons that we could be assessing on farm so there's a huge data set that we're really learning along the way and how we can adapt it better yeah, but yeah, some of our notch efficiency mapping I think there's a good story there too that we can tell some of the regulators yes we are applying quite a bit of synthetic inputs here and there but if we're being uptaken into the plant and being utilised I think that's a great story Yeah part of that story and being able to prove what you're thinking and knowing and rationalising up in your head you're actually being able to wrap the data sets around that which is exactly how we maintain our social license to farm yeah there's other aspects too for some of that data we're looking at um, viable rate seeding and some other things too and we can adapt it too to some of our growth regulators as well we can look at how the plant's growing and put those in areas as well and once again 100% profitability driven to get maximizing of the inputs we're putting on but then it all rolls on to a good environmental story as well so you mentioned hectare sampling on the farm. Yep. How do you go about doing that and how, how much of a tedious job is that? <laughs> we do. So we get contractors come and do it, agronomy solutions come and do that sampling for us and so we're 500 hectares the whole our operation so it's about 120 hectares that gets soil sampled every four years so it gets in a rotation. They just drive their motorbike inside the hectare grid, do 20 cores around the side, around the motorbike and put that into one bag and then on to the next one, and then so each bag is assessed individually at the lab, and then they can put it into their computer program and give us a pretty picture of our field of what areas are low or high and and each one of those key nutrients. And I think that's really important, isn't it? Because quite often we've taken the old traditional soil testing and maybe three or four samples per farm and, and made big decisions on those sorts of things. Just that variability that if you did a transient line across it, um, you might not pick up some of the low or high areas that we're seeing. And with our applied PK and pH afterwards, we're not spending any more money, but we're just putting in the areas that are lower and then some areas are really high. It's not getting anything. Efficient money spend and efficient environmental outcomes. That's right, yeah. Slight change of tangent here. We've gone very technical for a while. So I wonder if you could tell us your funniest story relating to farming or agriculture. Yeah, when you sent these questions through, I the brain of some funny things that I can actually tell on this podcast some of them I have to leave out but having <laughs> growing a lot of sunflowers and people seem to get excited um, when the yellow flowers come out and being cut in half by state higher one 
and growing right up to the roadside. 60 hectares of sunflowers people seem to get very excited by and want to stop and take photos. So from time to time I have to get out and explain to people. I don't know if it's that funny but it seems to be at the time. But they uh, are on private property and if I walked in their backyard and wanted to take their flowers out they might be quite upset about it. And they couldn't quite see the way where I was coming from. There's also been a few nose of tails of people stopping in the wrong place and had to get out and do a bit of traffic management around those things. But yeah, just some of those different things that you don't think you have to deal with on a, a daily basis farming. And then, yeah, a bit of negotiation with people and seems to take a long time to see our way, but we are growing them for a profit. Yellow flower fever. We had someone locally growing sunflowers on the roadside this year and they said the same thing. That traffic management is a really big factor to consider when you're growing sunflowers because yeah, yeah, people do lose the plot a little bit when they start to see them all come out. I thought they had updated all the Instagram last year and they wouldn't need to do it again because they got the photo, but they all seem to come back for round two or three or four. <laughs> yeah, kids get bigger. You need the annual family portrait in someone else's paddock. Yeah. Everyone gets excited with the yellow stuff. Yeah, what do you actually use the sunflowers for? So they're going into oil production. You can buy them supermarket shelf and the good oil brand. Yeah, oh, I've actually got that one myself. It's a really good quality oil and, yeah, seem to be a good company to work with too. Yeah, no, they are. We grow a lot of the oilseed rape too for the canola oil as well. So, yeah, it's a big part of our rotation to mix up with the cereal. Yeah, and mm-hmm. good deep-rooting crops as well. Um, so, yeah, good aspect on the soil health side as well. Yeah, I was going to say, is that the reason for incorporating them into the rotation with the cereal crops? Is that deep rooting? Yeah, that's right. And we can change a wee bit of chemistry too for some of our weed things as well. But yeah, then it's just not that same sort of plant growing in the crop every year. Different root structures like we talked about and how they integrate it with the soil. It works out as quite a good break crop for us because we can get quite a large area and relatively consistent yields. We're happy with that, how it works in our rotation at the moment. Yeah, and the sunflowers themselves need to be in a rotation too, don't they? Yeah, they have certain diseases and things in the soil. Like anything, it is a rotational thing. The same with like other legumes like beans and peas. So yeah, it's trying to manage that all together so we get a harmonious rotation that's profitable. But yeah, also managing different problems with weeds and pests and other things. Yeah, and actually that brings me back to another point from your journey before, is you mentioned that you don't have livestock on the farm anymore. Obviously, they are quite beneficial where they're integrated. So what is it about your farm that at the moment doesn't make it so suitable for having the livestock in that rotation? We were quite heavy clay base, and we used to do a lot of dairy grazing and things as well, which was good cash at the time. But yeah, the compaction and then the amount of tractor work that was involved to rectify those areas from if you had a very wet winter, trying to feed out and those sorts of things, you took a real hit on those spring crops. So you were predominantly autumn sowing, we can manage quite effectively in growing turf grasses as well without livestock. And I've hummed and out about some of those things at the moment, whether it's something that could be integrated back in again. But it's a bit of a cost at the moment of putting some fences back in and troughs. I pushed over our um, shearing shed that was a bit dilapidated and put a very good drying complex in. There's a bit of infrastructure need to go back in and then also an underpass as well. Being on the state highway one, we can't just run stock across the road. So yeah, there's quite a bit of infrastructure involved to go back to livestock again but at this stage I think we're still with that autumn sowing varieties of crop that we do grow predominantly we don't quite need it in our system that's the mindset at the moment but yeah like I say things change yeah now it's a really interesting point how 
sometimes a set of principles or guidelines um, has to be adapted to an individual farm, different soil types, different infrastructure you've got. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's about making the decisions that's best at the time and also making informed decisions. You're doing so much measuring of your soils on farm that actually you know you're getting positive outcomes in those soils even though you don't have the livestock integration. And actually, the risk management there of actually the financial risk of all that infrastructure, also the risk to your soil compaction with the type of soils you've got. And it's just that, yeah, really informed decision-making, eh? Yeah. But yeah, like I say, if things change, it may be something that does come up at this stage now. What if then some of the low-hanging fruit with regards to sustainability initiatives in your business? I think the soil and the soil quality, it's a big thing <laughs> when you talk about low-hanging fruit, but I think it's a massive resource that's under our feet that we seem to be learning more and more about every day and how we're using different inputs and things and more about the biologicals and other things that are happening below us. Yeah, I think that's the big resource that's below us and a lot of it is just unlocking it and managing it correctly, which can be hard with weather events and other things as well. Best practice one year might be a bit different the year after. So yeah, and that's a wee bit why bought myself a no-till drill now so we're moving away from cultivation but I've still got the cultivation gear there when it's minimal till as well because if I need to because of a wet harvest event you know I need might need to go through and do a wee bit of cultivation to to fix up some wheel marks and those sorts of things and rotational cultivation but yeah try and look after the soil the best we can that's what I would call a real low-hanging fruit for us that soil health. Digging into that a bit deeper, what do you think are some of the tools you've used to unlock that potential beneath your feet? I think, once again, I'm not a soil scientist, but uh, I think that it's the returning the residues into the ground, and that's really got the organic matter and getting the microbial activity, just break that down with its own composting. I think that's been a, a real step forward first. And then, yeah, just more how we've just kept working that in, getting the plant life underneath and just digging like you said before, what do you dig down to? Get your shovel out and have a look. You know, look at that worm activity. You know, look at how the root structure is going down. Is there a hard pan? Is it getting through? Um, you know, and just doing some real soil health visual assessment. Yeah, and it's a good activity to get the kids involved with. Our kids <laughs> yeah. love getting out there and digging holes and counting worms and yep. stuff. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Smell it, touch it, taste it. Amongst it. Yeah, hopefully one day we'll be able to offload that job to them, right? Take <laughs> that one off the to-do list and make the kids do it yep. instead. Yeah, no, that's right. So what's exciting you the most about your farming business over the next five years? I think continuing what we're doing with some of our soil health stuff and like looking into some no-till now and then also looking at with some of the technologies, things we're doing some of those recordings and moving it to some field rate seeding and applying our seeding rate at different areas from some of the data collection we've got and then also on top of that too a long time of doing individual soil tests and looking at that hectare good sampling we talked about before we're evening a lot of the farm out now and now looking at probably some of our nutrient removal maps as well look at what's being removed from the paddock because we've got more profitable areas of just how slope and aspect of the farmers we're on rolling country just replacing what's been put on it's really just dialing in to not only profitability but where our inputs are so i think it has that sustainability part of the package as well yeah, definitely. I think that it really comes back to you can't manage what you don't measure. And you guys just lifting that measurement to a degree that you can make such informed decisions and keep building that data set so that you can keep tweaking and adding as you go along. And do you find it a challenge in the data environment that is the New Zealand ag sector actually a good platform that allows you to assess all that data and manage it? 
Yeah, it's been a challenge the last couple of years and that's definitely a work on because I have multiple apps or sign-ins to go through that seem to lock me up because I've forgotten the password or other things like that. <laughs> that is a challenge in the next sort of year or two is bring that data into one sort of place. I've been recording in different areas as well and then everyone's got their own platform and it is getting better as an industry but then also some people may bring it together but then has it got to be on a platform that works for myself as well. Yeah, that's a big thing. And a lot of automation is happening now too, like I've gone away from relying on USB sticks and those sorts of things and manual transfer of data. I've gotten to a point now where doing it over the cloud and those sorts of things where it's automatically coming from the tractor. So that's a good start. Awesome. Moving on to the next question then, I'd love for our listeners to be able to hear what some of the best farming advice you've ever received. Farming advice, probably they receive a lot of that. There's a lot of knowledgeable guys around the arable sector that sort of hand out lots and certain things. But one of the ones that really resonate with me is celebrate your small wins and, and gains. It can be overwhelming and some of the things we do, um, whether it's regulatory or just the day-to-day of farming. I think it's important that when you've got a big workload ahead of you and you achieve something, just whether you just sit back for a couple of minutes and just think, oh, yeah, that's another thing ticked off your list or you do have good yields or anything like that. I think just celebrating those wins just makes it a bit smoother all the year or whatever it may be or the challenge that's ahead of you. And do you and Amy have a bit of a ritual for celebrating those small wins or successes? Um, you know, just going out for lunch or something like that when we get a minute away from the three young boys or go you know, out for dinner and, you know, yeah, just take stock of what's been achieved recently or when we've had a win, whatever that may be or what it looks like. It is important. I think so, and it's something we just seem to, you know, farming's quite often a seven-day-a-week job, and we do just get stuck up in the grind of doing, and once you finish one thing and you have a win, um, you've just got to get up and do it all again the next day. And so you do skip over them sometimes, and you don't actually take the time to reflect and celebrate how far you've come, and you can get five, ten years down the track, and your farming operation and what you're doing can look really different from in the past, and actually taking the time along the way to, to recognise that success and those changes and the wins because we've got to keep our resiliency up. Keeping your mindset in the game is just about celebrating those wins along the way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So touching on that about the fast pace of change and the never-ending avalanche that's constantly seems to be coming at us, what are some other tips or tricks you might have about how you prevent kind of that overwhelm or burnout or even apathy and continue to get up each day and face the challenge? I guess like some of that regulatory stuff too that does seem overwhelming, just to focus on that again a wee bit. I think there's always still, still a rewarding part of it somewhere and probably leading back to what we were talking about before, you might change some small things on farm. Sometimes like some of it is very overwhelming and probably not very centric to what you're doing but yeah just taking small parts out of it that may be a win for the farm or something rewarding out of it and then hopefully you can muddle through the rest i don't know that's what i really do about it at the moment a bit apart from talking about some of the advocacy side of it and make sure there's some actual change that's happening in some of those places that's going to have a good outcome for especially arable and the whole farming community yeah and i think that really important finding those little silver linings like out of everything that might seem like a challenge there's probably an opportunity for your farm or some way that you can make a little bit of progress and or have a small win and muddle through the rest quite like that take the wins and carry on farming yeah and just keep chipping away and you mentioned that advocacy role are you quite involved in sort of advocacy for this arable sector yeah i'm vice chair for arable federated farmers so just in the grains area yes i've done a bit there and 
yeah, some things that yeah, a couple of years ago I never thought I'd be involved with. But yeah. it's surprising when you get to talk to uh, some of these people that are making decisions, when you actually the people, well, if they're out there doing it every day, they actually do want to sit down and listen. So it gives you a bit of faith to come back and try again. And it has been surprising, yeah. But we probably just need a few more people to be doing it as well and telling the story. And that's, that comes down to the most important part. Yeah, you've been quite a rewarding experience being involved in that. Yeah, there is. You just got to be careful sometimes and make sure you look after the family and farm first and don't get those two things ticking along well with and not get too bored down on some of the advocacy afterwards. But and there is there's some stuff, definitely still some fun times in what we're doing and getting to talk to lots of different people and understand, you know, you learn other things too that can integrate back into your own farm, talking to different people and see the challenges ahead of us, but it has been enjoyable parts of it. Yeah, that resonates really strongly with me. I actually have written on our fridge one family, two, farm, three, everything else. Because sometimes in those busy times or on those tough days, you've just got to sit back and ground yourself with what's really important and reconnect with actually why you're here in the first place. And it's generally related to the family and the farm. So focus on those. And everything else can fall to the wayside. So young Harry's probably talking over top of you there. But that's part of the farm. You've been ousted. We, Harry's on the podcast now. <laughs> but yeah, and I think fun's an important part of that too. Yeah, and I think that's something really cool about having a house full of three young kids. It brings the fun and the joy into the farming, right? If you're having a tough day, it's pretty hard when the kids are making jokes about all sorts of things and having a laugh around the dinner table. It's pretty hard to stay grumpy about your day. And that's what we're doing now. It gets pretty corporate, how that's integrated into the things we have to do for banks all those other things. The family farm's not quite what it used to be on on that side of it, but the other part of the family farm is still there with the intergenerational thing coming through and being involved day to day and letting them learn things on farm. Yeah, it's getting that balance. Yeah, definitely. I know I come from an urban background, so I feel really blessed to be able to actually bring my children up on farm because it's such a cool childhood, like out there exploring and getting involved. And they learn a good work ethic from a young age when they're out there working with mum and dad on the farm. Definitely. And yeah, I've been blessed to be able to do that right from day one, so yeah, very lucky. Yeah. So lastly, we like to leave our listeners right back down at the um, ground level with something practical to take home. So I guess if you had one take-home sustainability tip for other farming businesses, what would it be? For me, I think it's soil health and gauge where you are today or if you haven't done, you look at get in there, dig some holes, get maybe some lab tests done and those sorts of things, do some visual assessment, take photos. Um, and that, I think that's something we've been taking on board here for the last couple of years and probably we've been doing it in the past but being a bit more focused and recording now because we're always learning in that space and there's different science that's coming out all the time and you know different ways to look at things and it, it is overwhelming but the more you get involved with it, the more you seem to pick up. So yeah, for me, I think that's just the soil is important. Yeah, and do you have any particular resources or areas that you'd point people to if they wanted to get started on understanding their soil health better? Oh, from the arable side, like um, FAR, Foundation Arable Research, they've got some good stuff there with soil health indicators and things like that and where to do some of those tests and what to be looking for. But then you once again, I've probably listened to different podcasts here and there and you you pick up lots of things along the way and the first time you listen to one, it's pretty overwhelming. But then the more you do it and the more you talk about it, the more you understand it, it just becomes second nature a wee bit. Um, and then you pick up the next thing and the next thing and it's just a growth. So, yeah, lots and lots of stuff out there. <laughs> but, yeah, just trying to digest what you can at the time. 
Yeah. And there's some really good books out there as well, available in audiobook form. Who has time to read with three children and farming? But um, yeah. no, I find just those audiobooks are quite good as well because then you can just keep them and refer back to them. Every time you seem to listen to it, you pick up something different, right? Yeah, a lot of time on tractors and sprayers and those sorts of things. So <laughs> it helps burn a few hours. Yeah, so we'll put the links through to the bar resources and the show notes for this podcast. But lastly, I'd really like to thank you so much for today, Andrew. Um, you've been an incredible guest and I know that everyone will take away something really practical that they can go out and implement on farm. Thank you so much for your time and thank you to Wee Harry for joining us too. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. So after that chat, I'm sure you can all see why Andrew and Amy got awarded the 2023 Environmental and Sustainability Award at the Arable Awards. They certainly have been busy implementing an array of different innovations on farm. But what I'd like to do for a second is touch on the SDGs that really interlink between their farming business. The first of those being goal number eight, decent work and economic growth. Obviously, being a family farm going through succession, profitability is really important to Andrew and Amy. What did Andrew say? You have to be in the black to go green. So profitability will keep them sustainable into the future, so that they're here to carry on farming. Goal number three, good health and well-being, was reflected in the importance he places on celebration of small successes. Goal number 15, life on land, shone through with Andrew's importance that he places on soil health. Every aspect of this conversation came back to the soil. So it's obvious that he's really passionate about this goal. Goal number nine, industry, innovation and infrastructure, shows on their farm with the integration of auto-sensing on the tractor, hectare grid sampling and farm nutrient mapping. And lastly, I'd just like to touch on goal number 12, responsible consumption and production which if you dig into the underlying targets, actually has one about achieving environmentally sound management of chemicals, which through precision agriculture, Andrew has managed to optimise his chemical usage, ensuring it is only applied where needed and going to where it's suited. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Whole Story Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and are feeling inspired and optimistic about putting sustainability into practice on farm. I have one last request for you before you go. Make sure whatever platform you're listening to us on that you hit follow and share the show or episodes with your friends so that together we can grow our community and inspire sustainability and agriculture in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And thanks again to FMG for partnering with The Whole Story so that we could bring this podcast to life for you all to enjoy. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.